Welcome to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today we're speaking with the poet Mia Malhotra. Mia is the author of Asako Asako, just out from Alice James Books, and winner of the 2017 Alice James Award. She holds a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from the University of Washington. And her poems have appeared in numerous literary journals and anthologies, including Indiana Review, The Greensboro Review, Best New Poets, and Dismantle, an anthology of writing from Vona Voices Writing Workshop. A Pushcart Prize nominee and a founding editor of Lantern Review, she has received fellowships from the Vona Voices Writing Workshop and Kundiman, an organization dedicated to the cultivation of Asian American writing. Mia lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her family. Now, I'm particularly delighted to have this conversation today with Mia because we actually had a conversation two years ago about some of the same topics. Back then, the conversation revolved around rivers, and particularly the River Mekong, but then led to a larger discussion of mothers and family history and what we pass on. And these become very much the same topics that we address in this interview. So I think there's something deeply valuable about returning to a conversation that we had begun and never quite finished and arriving at a new set of insights, a deeper understanding through the lens of a few years and a set of life experiences that has changed us, that allows a conversation to become something richer and more complex. So without further ado, let's return to a conversation that was started two years ago and explore where it takes us now. I'm having this flashback moment. I remember you asking that question, and I, I remember now what I what I said. I think I said I was obsessed with rivers, and one river in particular, the Mekong River, which cuts through a lot of Southeast Asia, which is where I grew up. And I think I remember saying I was obsessed with it because um, one of the ways that it's talked about in Lao culture and Thai culture um, is as the the mother river, or like the mother that births or that holds us all. And I'm thinking back to that time, I'm like, that's amazing, because was I a mom at that point? I think maybe I had had, yeah, I had my first kid already. But anyway, there are two now. I've got two little girls. And I think my obsession has sort of just deepened with that concept of the mother that holds us all, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think back then I was thinking about it as a specific river, and that was sort of working through like a, an older project side for now, but the obsession with sort of origin and mother river or even mother as a figure that traces back and back through generations um, that continues to hold is probably my like single largest obsession, partially because I like I work and am a mother um, mm-hmm. all day, every day and all night. <laughs> it just, it's <laughs> like it never stops. But then also because that's that feels really important to me as as a writer. It's the way that I connect to sort of my identity, my cultural identity, my family history, my sense of self and origin. So, yeah, I, I was thinking about. I wonder if we'll go back to the river because the I, I love that part of that conversation and where we began last time and. I'm so grateful you brought it up again. This idea of the the river, the mother river, the mother that contains us all, and sort of the the shape of how rivers, you know, how they manifest in terms of that spread, the constant branching and dividing and dividing, and the reach yeah. of a river, um, yeah. and its hidden sources and its its impact on the terrain. And I love this idea of having something that is such a it is a terrain feature it's part of you know i like to tell people when i'm i'm teaching a workshop sometimes to kind of explore their own interior their own sort of mythic landscape and in this case it really is like an actual terrain feature that dominates sort of that interior world or how you see the rest of the world yeah yeah that's wonderful insight. I love that. I'm thinking of so many different things right now, like the parallels, you know, between like the way a river functions geographically 
and I don't know, the continuity of the river, you mm-hmm. know, um, and how that parallels with the ways that I conceive of family history and sort of generational time, how like one generation just sort of flows seamlessly into the next. And because my my book, Isako Isako, is, I mean, a lot of it is elegy. It's about the two deaths of my grandmothers. But in a way, I mean, it's also about life and sort of the continuity of that, which sort of echoes in the river as well, because it it holds death and it holds life. And I think, um, I mean, I've got my book sitting right here in front of me, and I'm just thinking of the epigraphs that I included. There were a lot of different epigraphs and different drafts. (laughs) But um, the one that I landed on in the end talks about how we're linked to one another's bodies throughout time and history in a female lineage that has carried on the human story. And that's from Naomi Ruth Lewinsky's book Mm. on the mother line. I'm just sort of thinking, gosh, that's the river, (laughs) you know? It Um, it is. I mean, that is how, you know, and there are certain cultures and traditions where it is the maternal line that's the most important because that's the one that actually you can... That, that's evidentiary. You can actually point to, like, it's clear you came from this person, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And even sort of like biologically at a, like a cellular yeah. level, you know? Yeah, yeah it's like... <laughs> yeah, all the bacteria, you know, we've got our mom's bacteria in our body. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Um, so so has, did the river, aspects of the river end up coming into... So you said this this was started off as a a larger obsession that dominated a previous project. Did some of that spill over, so to speak, into into what you're working or what you worked on for, for this particular book? Mm, that's a good pun, Neil. I like that. Did it spill over? <laughs> um, I think, gosh, this is the first time I've thought about the river in conversation with this book. Success for us. Are, we have made a new connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there are a few moments in which the river appears And now I'm going to have to read that poem at the end of the conversation. One of the the poems is entitled After Hiroshima, and it's about a visit to the the peace memorial that I I took on my one time ever to Japan, which, you know, in my family we talk about as the motherland, which Mm -hmm. um, also feels significant right now. But the end of that poem talks about how the Isako, who is sort of the mythical, like, female forebearer that I created out of all these different generations of experience in my family line, how her body sort of drifts back um, on the river because Hiroshima is placed, you know, Mm. um, sort of at the mouth of all these different rivers. So I think the river does make an appearance. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of fishing. There are a lot of, like, fish bodies and pulling fish apart and catching fish. And that's another sort of feature of my family's life together. They... They like to fish a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of a generational thing that gets passed passed down. Yeah, that, it's interesting you bring up fish because that actually reminded me of a project I worked on years ago. I ended up helping a, a Taiwanese um, animation student at USC on a project. She was doing a short film about a particular group of people that live. There's like an island, a uh, very very small island south of Taiwan that their entire culture and their community revolves around their relationship with the sea and in particular with flying fish, which is their primary like means of sustenance as they rely on catching flying fish. And so all their dances, all their music, all their traditions, their clothing, everything goes back to the motif of the flying fish. And, um, And so she had animated sort of this short film that you know, kind of talks about that. And, you know, and she had, you know, asked me to, to um, help her take sort of the raw text that she had written and turn it into sort yeah. of a narrative voiceover poem from which it could kind of work. And the, the interesting thing was this, like, some of the images, you just see the, you see the waves. So the fish come out of the waves, they leap into the sky, they become birds, and then they swoop back down and become fish again. And you just see that cycle over and over and over again. And that circular motion just moves throughout the whole animation. And it really reminds you and and kind of communicates that sense of like how intertwined they are. Like the, the fish, the water, and the people are all 
you know, bound together. And so, you know, thinking about fish and rivers and tradition and generations of people being all intertwined, you know, it's like, what is a fish? It, it, it's part of the way in which we're consuming or becoming, you know, we take in part of the river and then we also, you know, the waste products go back into the environment mm -hmm. and find their way back yeah. into the, the river. So Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I um I went to high school in Thailand and every spring break I would go on like a week long uh scuba diving trip. We'd like live on board on the diving ship and mm -hmm. like take four dives a day and then do a night dive if we were lucky. Um, and I remember like living out on the water and seeing these flying fish mm -hmm. around I and mean, it's it's the most spectacular thing because it's it's impossible, you know, that a fish would be like flying. <laughs> like they, they, yeah, they skim over the surface of the water and it's, yeah. It's the there, there's something audacious about just the idea of a flying yeah, fish yeah. to say like, I am so in one element. I am yeah. so fluid in one element. And yet I also aspire to be fluid in a second element, which is the air. Exactly. And it's like, exactly. it's like, and we stumble around on, on land, you know, and we, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just not yeah. as graceful, you know, we can't do, you know, yeah. it's like there, are, I guess that's what, you know, dance is about is trying to like become, you know, something like that fish to ascend into something yeah. else to transcend, you know, our, our own yeah. sort of frame. Yeah, and it's so different than being like a human body and, you know, having all this gear on so that you can do something like scuba dive, you know, which feels sort of like you feel very much like a, an, I don't know if intruder is the right word, but you definitely are aware that, you know, you're only able to do this because of the oxygen tank and all of this. <laughs> the stuff strapped on to you, like weighing you down and you're, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very different. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a lovely memory. I'm glad that, yeah, that's, that's evoked for me. Yeah. And at the same time, there's like spending that much time on the water and in the water, you must've felt almost like a fish at times. I did. I, did. <laughs> I love the water. Um, which is, you know, since, like I was saying, one of my obsessions is, you know, the experience of being a mother and of pregnancy. I mean, that was one of the things I thought about so much as, mm -hmm. um, as working on poems during the, my preg second pregnancy. Um, I was thinking about, like, I, I've got this, like, this creature that's living in water inside of me. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an ocean right now for this, yeah, for this little person who's growing Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I thought about it. I wrote about it. I felt very obsessed and sort of just inhabited by that strange reality. But I mean, we all start out as fish in a way. In a way, yeah, we we do. Yeah. We're we're yeah. these creatures that live in water, like you said. It's it's, and then we try to become things that live on land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. This obsession with motherhood then, you know, like we talked about the rivers, but also like this larger obsession with what it means to be a mother or with motherhood and its different incarnations. You know, what other ways do you see this, um, you know, showing up either in your work or in things that you, like has this obsession then led to other obsessions? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely come to figure very, very prominently in my work. I tried sort of hard as I was finishing Isako Isako to sort of keep the mother, the mothering poems out, or at least the ones that are about my mothering experience, mm. because I felt like this project is about the lives that have come before me and myself in relationship to those lives. And I didn't want to involve, you know, the generations that going to come after me or that are coming after me. So I tried to, you know, kind of keep it out. But the next the next manuscript that I'm working on, I mean, the sort of organizing mm -hmm. force around and in it and everywhere um, is, yeah, is the experience of, of being a mother. And I don't mean that in like a, oh, first you do this and then you do this. And the, like, it's not really about the, I don't know how to describe it. It's not about like the actions or the like the surface experiences of it, it's more um, about sort of how the field of a person's life and being and 
um, even like the, your physical makeup. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading about like the placenta, for instance, and it's like this organ, like another organ in your body that like grows when mm-hmm. you're pregnant and it scrambles all of the like the information in your body in order to become what it is. And then this organ, like, leaves your body. I don't know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so the way that, um, like, mothering and pregnancy and childbirth, how that sort of reorganizes the nature of your being. I've been, yeah, I've been really obsessed with that, and that, that comes out in, in my work. I, you know, it, it's interesting you say that. That makes me think of, um, like, in various medieval texts, you know, there was a way in which many people, alchemists, you know, viewed that as a type of you know, natural alchemy that happens, this conversion of one set of elements into this something completely different is produced. Yeah. And, and so, so yeah, so it was kind of interesting that there is a type of alchemy as well. Yeah, like, yeah. that's a different a metaphor. Way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, you see sort of, do, do you have a, a name for this next project or, or is it um, still so evolving? Segment, yeah, there's a segment in it that I've actually been sending out as a chat book. It's called Mother Salt, um, mm-hmm. and I'm loosely using that as the title for the whole project, mm-hmm. but I mean, that, that could change. But I thought, you know, it, it's one word, Mother Salt, because I was thinking of, you know, salt as something that's in blood, in tears, and mm. in the sea, you know, in uh, sweat, and all of these sort of fluids that surround this experience of becoming and being a mother, because, I mean, the fluids are just unbelievable. <laughs> like, especially, like, in those first weeks after, yeah, having the child, like, is this blood, is this milk, is this pee, is this sweat? I don't even, it's just, yeah, is it spit up? <laughs> so I felt sort of immersed in sort of the, yeah, the, the matter of this, um, mm-hmm. of this experience. And it's, yeah, it's spilled out over into my, into my work. I think I've not talked about this publicly (laughs) before. (laughs) It's been a, well, not a private obsession completely because I've published pieces from this project. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but I've never had like a conversation about it before. (laughs) (laughs) We we go all sorts of strange places in these conversations. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think one of the other things that you had talked about too, and this is kind of hinted at already earlier in our conversation, is the ways in which this obsession with sort of the the mother figure and also the there's a generational aspect of it. It leads us into sort of a, an idea of history, of family history, of generational knowledge and tradition. You know, how do you see the connections then? What are some of the surprising places that this obsession has taken you in your own pursuit of family history and making sense of of what's Um, there and what's perhaps not there. Yeah. I've been surprised by sort of the echoes and the repetitions that I've discovered. And then also some of the the fractures that just exist as fractures, you know, like something was broken and it stayed broken. Mm. Like, forever you know it's never it's never been mended those kinds of things i so i should give a little bit of context for some of the poems in isako isako um i've got poems in there that are based mostly on my paternal grandmother um who i i think i exchanged like letters with her when i was younger and she like she told me by letter about some of her experiences as a japanese american young woman um, during the internment and during war, World War II. But we didn't ever really talk very much about that. And then she passed. She passed away quite a while ago. But on the other side of the family, my mom's mom, she lived, or she lived very close to me, and so I would spend, like, I don't know, an afternoon every week sitting next to her on the couch, and we'd look through her photo albums. Um, and she was a really, really meticulous archivist, so she had details from basically every year of the family's life since she had moved to the U.S. after after World War II. Um, she moved from Japan. And so she's she was like the one person in my family that actually linked me to Japan as a, as a like a, an actual country, not just mm. like this sort of mythical 
homeland that mm-hmm. a long, long time ago people came from, you know, because I think that's how Japan figures in sort of the other sort of parts of my family. Um, but she was actually, she was born in Osaka. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her childhood stories, those are the, those stories are the things that became the most vivid for me and the things that sort of brought to life a lot of the, a lot of the work in Isako Isako because, I don't know. She had an incredible recall for very vivid detail. I feel like in another life she would have been a poet herself. <laughs> Maybe she, I think she sort of was a poet. Um, but I mean, she would tell me like the tiniest detail of, you know, a pattern on a piece of clothing or, you know, a, something that she remembered. And so I felt like the memories became my own in a way. And then, so I just, I felt like I was writing sort of like transgenerationally almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, some of these poems, I was like, am I her? Am I remembering this as her? Am I remembering it as me? Am I, I don't know. It, it all felt very continuous. And so I think she's sort of my, or she was my main sort of conduit for this family, sense of family history and lineage that sort of carries carries through time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and from Japan across the ocean through that body of water in mm-hmm. the, the California were there any surprises along the way? Things that you didn't anticipate discovering as you set out there to? There were, there were, and there, yeah, there are details that I actually did put in the, I did put in the poems in the book sort of obliquely because some of them were things that, like, they, they were never talked about. I didn't mm. know that mm-hmm. that was a part of her mother's experience or her, you know, her father's experience. And then afterwards, like, she would, she never would mention some of those details. And I thought, did I make them up? You know, I mean, they're a little bit, like, scandalous or strange. Would she want me to write about them? I don't know. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think I just sort of held, held it all as, like, myth a little bit and mystery. Because, I mean, it might as well have been made up. It happened so long ago, you know. For her, even, as she described these things, it was like she was talking about them at such a remove. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it really felt like somebody else's life. And, yeah, so... I was, oh, uh, I, I was think they're... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying, I was talking to someone about, um, like, the ways that I sort of sidestepped those anxieties that mm-hmm. people have. You know, when they're writing about family, like, do I write about the family secret, you know? Um, so I was like, well, I invented a character, I smushed all the generations and all the characters and all the lives together, and so there's, like, deniability, you know, like, well, that didn't happen to that person, it was actually that other person, but none of it matters. So. That, that's an interesting point, that it is one strategy to kind of sidestep or evade, you know, like, revealing too much is to kind of conflate them into one yeah. character. yeah. I don't know if it's like ethically <laughs> problematic. But. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I had a creative nonfiction class uh, years ago, and uh, we talked about like about sort of like ethical storytelling and like relating of the facts. And the truth is, that's what we always said was, well, it's a little bit tricky <laughs> to talk about truth because there's like, are you talking about the strict factual historical yeah. truth, or are you talking about like what is sort of the emotional truth in the moment, which sometimes can be arrived at better by combining a couple characters or by like simplifying the scene a little bit. Um, And so it becomes tricky. It's like, you know, each writer has to figure out where that line is when they still feel comfortable with what they've done. I, I mean, I think as poets, we do it a lot. You know, there are I think I have a poem in my first book, which is like, it takes a conversation that I had with my father on the phone and shifts it to a, an experience where we're driving through a blizzard and removes my uncle, which is sitting in the car at the time, from that experience because he's not really needed for that exchange that's happening between my father and I. And so, like, does that make it less true, or does it, you know, accomplish something that's more closer to the emotional truth of that conversation? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, so do I have an answer? I, I think I, I can sleep at night with that particular depiction, so I think I'm fine. But, yeah, I think sometimes you, you kind of have to weigh it all. 
it's it's tricky. And I, I think too, it's like you were saying too, it's like there is a point in which someone is sharing with you part of their past or part of what happened to their their mother or their father when you realize that this is a story either that's been told so often that it's evolved, it's become almost mythic in its telling. Yeah. You know, there are aspects that are exaggerated or emphasized and other aspects which are downplayed. Or it is something that's been held onto for so long internally that when it's finally shared, there is some deeper meaning because it's been kept sacred or secret for so long that it now the, the person telling it has imparted into that so much extra weight, emotional weight to, to the telling that it feels, you know, it feels heavy. It feels weighty when you hear it. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you know that this is a rare occurrence to hear that story. Um, my father was a great storyteller. And, and yeah, he had an ability to just make like particular moments in his childhood or when he was uh, a young man come alive and you'd like feel like you were right there. Um, my mother is less of a storyteller. In fact, many aspects of her life growing up, I did not know until I went to Taiwan and spent time with my relatives there, and they would tell me stories about her when she was younger that I'd never heard the entire time I had been growing up. And it's like, that's my mother? That's what she did? It's like, wow. <laughs> she would never, you know, reveal some of, like, my mother in some ways is a superhero, in my opinion. She's just a superhero. And she would do things when she was 14 that I'm just amazed at. Um, yeah, there's, there's a story that I heard where she... Um, she was walking home from school, and she heard someone beating a child um, upstairs in an apartment building. And she she determined which building it was and which floor and which apartment. And she ran into the building, located the apartment, kicked open the door, yelled at the, the, the person beating the child and said, don't you dare strike that child. If I if you do it again, I will come I will kick the crap out of you, I think is what she's oh <laughs> she's like 14. And my relatives, you know, her siblings told me about that. They said, that's the type of person your mother is. She will wow. not put up with injustice of any sort. Yeah. Cruelty or injustice. She will not put wow. up with it. Wow. How old were you when you heard that story? Um, I was 20. And I just, I'd never heard that story. It's not something she would talk about. Yeah, wow. Were you surprised when you heard, like, did that feel consistent with who you knew? Um, it just, like, I think my mother was, all, my mother still is, well, we have a closer relationship now, but I feel like growing up, she she didn't always, like, reveal certain aspects of herself. She, was, she played her cards really close, <laughs> And so I, I don't know if it was, uh, she grew up as the eldest in her family, so she was always taking care of everyone else. And so I think she often put aside, you know, addressing her needs, you know, publicly, and she just quietly take care of things that she needed to get taken care of. But everyone would pay attention. Everyone had, like, deep respect for her because they understood that really she was the glue that held together that family. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, the stories that we hear and the stories that we don't hear, you know, yeah. and how it changes, you know, how we understand um, those people. You know, the stories I hear about, you know, I'd hear sometimes stories about my father growing up. And, you know, it would, you know, I'd look at my father and realize in many respects, he's still that same mischievous kid. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, there's a part of him that, that never really left that behind. It's like, yeah, that's, that's my dad stole that. You know, he loved terrible jokes and horrible puns, and it was just like his bread and butter, and he just you know, keep. It's just terrible, but literary, but terrible. <laughs> You're listening to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. We're speaking to Mia Malhotra about rivers, family history, and the legacy of motherhood. Let's return to the conversation. Yeah. 
I'm trying to imagine the dynamic of that that relationship, like the very responsible sort of eldest sister, <laughs> and then the mischievous um, sort of jokester. It was a, it was an interesting dynamic. I mean, because yeah. my father was the second youngest in his family. So he wasn't the youngest child, but he was the second youngest child. And so he felt more distant. Like, he didn't have a very close relationship with his father. His older brother was, I think, like seven years older than him. You know, so there's a big age difference between the two of them. And so his older brother, my uncle, was close, but in a different way. You know, like older sibling, you know, always keeping an eye on the younger kid <laughs> sort of way. <laughs> but they, they became very close later on. And it, but it was just interesting. He, just, he was closer to his siblings and never really close to his own father, but close to his mother. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a different dynamic. And uh, yeah. Yeah. my grandfather, his father, was, uh, you know, came from Scotland when he was 14 on his own you know, and, and just made a life for himself in Canada. You know, <laughs> it's very independent, very, like, stubborn, but very enterprising and productive, so. Yeah, I think I said something earlier about, like, the the funny, like, repetitions and echoes that I discovered as I was, like, learning more of this family history. That just occurred to me now as you're just, you know, I think of you as one of the most sort of enterprising literary people that I know with all like the different things that you've launched in recent years and yeah I mean it's it's just phenomenal to me um I, mean, I can mostly just barely do one thing <laughs> right now which is like make sure my family is like functioning um and maybe some poems on the side but I don't know it just it makes me think about you know those who come before us and their lives and the ways that they live their lives and how that shapes the families, you know, that they build, that shape the people that grow up in those families that shape, you know, and so on and so forth until, you know, it comes to us. And then the, the people whose lives we shape as parents or aunties or uncles or whatever. Yeah, and it all feels so continuous to me. Um, what are some of the things that you feel are, are being passed on that, you know, perhaps this project or, or this yeah. This period of writing has kind of revealed to you. Yeah. Well, this is not related to writing. <laughs> but, not necessarily um, writing, yes. Yeah, I mean, don't even get me started on the thing. Like, it's become sort of a running joke that I have with my mom. Like, when one of my daughters does something that reminds us of, of her mom, which mm-hmm. in t- turn reminds her of herself and reminds me of myself. And, you know, <laughs> little, like, I mean, borderline, like, OCD things, like, oh, all the colors of the, I don't know, like the buttons all have to be organized by color or like all the markers need to be in rainbow order or I don't, like there's this need for um, sort of categorization and order and even at a very young age, like I see this in my in my kids and we just go like, oh, Isako, Isako. Um, I mean, it's, it's the title of my book, but it, that's a stand-in for this idea that, you know, we, like we exist in different generations and different times but Mm -hmm. in a way we're sort of just repeating the like the tendencies and proclivities of our moms and our moms before them and Mm -hmm. you know and so on and so forth so I don't know that that sort of thing comes up a lot where yeah we see somebody like insisting on something that something be done a very specific way so I think that particular that like particularness um Mm. Is another feature. <laughs> so. It's interesting. Yeah. So, like yeah. mannerisms and, and particular yeah. tendencies, and you look at yeah. it and he's like, that's so and so. Again, it's come back. You know, yeah, there's, exactly. yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's weird things that, you know, get passed on in families. Sometimes it's like voices. Um, my father and I yeah. had yeah. like identical voices, and it would yeah. freak everyone out. People that had known us for years could not tell us apart on the phone. You know, so I would pick up, when I was living at home, I'd pick up the phone and someone would ask for my wife. And when my dad would pick up the phone, someone would ask for his mother, you know, <laughs> and they couldn't tell us apart. And they'd yeah. known us for like 10 years and they couldn't tell us yeah. apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. 
so that that's the moment when you go, oh, Isako, Isako, yeah. <laughs> because it's sort of like, we're all the same, we're living in this, yeah, continuum of experience. I, I catch myself telling <laughs> terrible jokes and thinking that's exactly the thing my <laughs> father would have said right at that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, it's it's weird, like you find yourself there again. And, you know, my father would say that. He would say things about my my sister would remind him of some of his sisters. And I have a my aunt, who's his younger, you know, his younger sister, so the youngest of the family, um, lives out here in um, in the Pacific Northwest. And she and her husband, you know, they have um, they have a grandson that's living with them right now, who's uh, three quarters Japanese. And because um, our family's weird, <laughs> my dad's sister married Japanese American, and then. Mm-hmm one of their sons moved to Japan and married Japanese. And so they have this, this grandson who's uh, three quarters Japanese. And the, frequently she will get confused and call him by his father's name because sometimes he acts like his father. And uh, oh it's just interesting, you know. Yeah. There, there's like these, even though they're, they're not all together at the same time, there's ways in which independently people pick up, you know, somehow the same sort of mannerisms and patterns. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's really deeply fascinating. Um, yeah. So your family history, is it, do you feel it's complicated too by sort of the path that your family branches have taken to get to you? It is, yeah. It is, like, if you think of it as a river, like, there are a lot of funny, like, interruptions or skips or mergings or, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Like, my, so my family name, I, I changed my last name when I got, got married, um, but my family name before that was Sakai. And um, that's not actually, like, the name that the family was supposed to have, or it was, like, an adopted name. Oh, interesting. They, it turns out that... Um, when so this was my dad's dad's family so i don't know four generations back or whatever when they immigrated to the us they had all these daughters and they needed a son and so they sort of like i mean i think they say they adopted one but i think they sort of bought him from another family that had a lot of sons but not as much resource so they sort of mm. I, I don't even understand like, and apparently it sort of it wasn't like totally out of the ordinary. I, I was going to say, I actually know of, I've met families in Taiwan where, yeah, a family that had mostly daughters yeah. would purchase, you know, a son from a family that had mostly sons. Okay. And this was usually so, like yeah. um, post-war period or yeah. um, during yeah. periods of famine. And, you know, where there's a desperation to put food on the table and there was a realization we can't support all these kids. Maybe it's better if we do offer them a chance to live in another home and that families, you know, provides us with with either food or with money so that we can support ourselves. And so it's it's not like it's kind of a, you know, a period of desperation leads to that. But there's also that sense of we need some way to preserve our family. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, when you asked about, you know, like mm. the branches, does it get complex? I, I think that's the one thing that jumps to mind because I, I know that in that particular line of the family, there was like a, a skip over from one sort of tributary to the to the next. <laughs> so I think like the family name was actually Oishi and then, yeah, and then they adopted this, this son. So he became a Sakai instead. And then that's the, that's the family line that my dad and his dad's dad come came from so that's mm. where my like my last name was from it was like a, a name that was put on to somebody else which is why I, a little bit i was sort of like well i know many people keep their last names after they get married but i don't know was it ever mine to start <laughs> i don't know no, that's interesting yeah i mean i for me it's it's not a last name as much as i have a middle name which i i sometimes you'll wonder about because it comes from a completely different culture, which we don't have claim to. So my middle name is Tungaroa, which is a Maori uh, name. And my father, you know, was 
My father had been a missionary in New Zealand and in the Cook Islands and fell in love with uh, the Maori language and the, oh, and the and mythology and the, the, the culture and the traditions. And he just fully embedded himself um, there. And he just loved, loved, loved particular stories of a great explorer who was named Tungaroa, who was named after the god of the sea. And so years later, you know, when uh, they were about to give birth to me, he and my mother decided that I would be, my middle name would be Tungaroa, and I would be an explorer of knowledge. Wow. And so that's how I ended up with the name. And so now, you know, there are moments when people see my name before they meet me, and they, they expect that I'm going to be part Polynesian, or they, you know, have a particular image in their mind. And then there's a, a moment of like confusion when they realize that I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's strange. I feel like my father was not simply pulling a name at random out of a book, and you know had legitimately studied and thought about what the yeah. the ramifications would be for choosing that name. But it did leave me and does leave me from time to time feeling awkward about a name that I have. You know, yeah. I I wouldn't you know, want to like go through life using that as my given name just because I feel like <laughs> it's not really my culture. It's not my place yeah, to claim yeah. it. But at the same time, I feel like there is a story and a tradition that's being passed on with it that is meaningful and it helps tie me to my father and tie me to, you know, a moment in his life that was deeply moving and powerful for him. It changed how he saw the world and how he saw other people. And I think, honestly, it changed how we saw language and and community. And so, like, growing up, our home was very much, you know, influenced by the idea that it was a common place where we brought people together and stories were told and food was eaten and there was a lot of food that was eaten. So, <laughs> so yeah. So what, what are some of the things that you hope to pass on to, to your daughters? Well, I had this really poignant moment um, after my book launch earlier this month. My older daughter attended the, the launch. It was like the first poetry event we mm-hmm. brought her to. And she came up with flowers afterwards. And I had this moment. I just, I mean, I was in tears, which made her cry too. I hope <laughs> she knew that like they were happy tears. But I told her that like I had written Isako Isako. I'd written it for her um, mm. so that she would know where she comes from and who she is and who makes her. Um, And so I think, I mean, there are so many things I want to pass on, but maybe underneath it all, I want want them to have a deep sense of who they are, where they're located um, Mm -hmm. in sort of the broader sweep of history. And part of that is family history, but I mean, a lot of that is just sort of like an emotional or even a spiritual center, you know, Mm -hmm. They can feel deeply rooted in, in something and yeah, and the culture we shape around them through our family and the stories and hopefully in some ways the, the poetry that I, I write for them. Because um, I think becoming a parent, I mean, that's sort of one of the biggest driving forces for what I do. I mean, I work very hard to make sure that I have the time to write because I really believe that I'm doing something that I'm leaving behind for them. And that feels more urgent to me now than it did before I had a sense of, you know, the next generation that's to come. It felt so abstract. (laughs) (laughs) But now I can, like, I can see time stretching ahead of me, and it moves into a time in which I don't exist anymore. Mm. And all that's there is the work that I leave. So I want to leave them my poems (laughs) 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 and everything else. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it is like leaving them with a clear sense of who they are, where they come from, and then something tangible too, you know, in terms of like leaving, you know, your words, your your voice lives on in those poems. Um, The stories live on. They have life. Um, You know, I I think it's a really powerful, you know, thing to do in speaking about like, I guess my father, one of his, well, his obsession was family history. And so there's always like a a spot in my heart that's close to that topic because 
of the ways in which, you know, for him, it was always about the stories. It was always about coming to know our ancestors on a very deeply personal way. It wasn't enough to simply have a catalog of names and dates and birthplaces and death places. But it was like, he would do things like he would write a day in the life of, and he would pick like a particular ancestor and try to research and flesh out what it would have been like to be, you know, a 15th century peasant, you know, struggling in England to, to, to survive. And what are the things that we would understand from, from what the records kind of. Yeah. Imaginative work. Yeah. To be able to like imagine. Yeah. Yeah, so he was always he was always pushing. You know, that was one of the things my father always told me. He's just like, yeah. everyone has a story. You just have to ask the right question, and sort of like whether that had to do with family members or it had to do with strangers we met, you know, while shopping or out on the, you know, sidewalk. He said everyone has a story. You just have to find the right question, and you know that really to me is just always like help me, you know, navigate the world. That's, that's part of his legacy that he passes on to yeah. me is that, that deep curiosity about the people that I encounter. Yeah. And even if and we I never have a conversation, I like speculate and think about them. And think, <laughs> How did they get here? What's, what's, where is this going? Maybe it's a little Sherlock Holmes too, where I'm like, <laughs> what can I deduce from <laughs> what I see? Um, I was going to say, it's remarkable how I see you living that legacy out, even in your work with the Lit Fantastic. It's sort of like, I mean, you give an hour to hear the stories, you know, behind behind the work. And I think that's a remarkable way that yeah, I see your father's life mm-hmm. lived in yours, even though, you know, he's not, he's not physically, like, present, you know, but... But the life, the life is continuous, and I guess maybe that's my whole point with Isaka. Yeah. Um, that the, this life is continuous, and it lives, it lives through us. And I mean, there's going to be a time where none of us are around. It'll be the next generation, hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully there's someone to pass it on to. You know, yeah, hopefully things are going. Um, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. so it's yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I think it would be wonderful if we could close with a, a few poems. Uh, do you have two or three poems that you'd like to share with us to wrap up uh, our conversation? I have a few that I, uh, I'm trying to think quickly back on the things we've talked about to see if they're poems that sort of evoke. Um, okay, I think I know. I think I'll do two of them. I'll do one about, you know, the different lifetimes, and then I think I'll do that Hiroshima one. Mm. Um, just because we talked about the the rivers and the bay and the, the body of water and then the body of history that comes back. Okay, um, so these are both from the the first section of the book, which is called Legion, My Legion. It's sort of a catalog of all the different ways like lesion is present or breakage is present. Mm. Um, first one is Isako, like ash, your sister drifts back to you during the war. Isako. You tell me your sister, her daughter's half-Japanese, turned to the neighbors cold. This memory, Isako, a thicket that cannot be breached, how it rises to block the sky. Nights, Isako, you tell me you darkened the windows, ready to pot of uncooked rice for the pit in your front yard, deep as a grave. Isako, out of the wanderings of history, you have emerged, Isako, on this white couch, all the body fallen from your bones. To hear you speak, Isako, of war rations, potatoes one week, yellow onions the next, mother riddled with stomach pains, is like hearing you speak of another life, Isako, stumbling through streets, bolts of silk clutched to your chest, begging for handfuls of rice, Isako. Your uncle whispers something about the city bombed, like ash, your sister, and her two girls drift back to you on the wind. Your brother soon follows. Overhead, a haze of memory. So many lifetimes, Isako. Together we stand, mist breaking into little tendrils and drifting away. Isako, the world so bright and buzzing with activity. It is difficult, Isako, to remember you at the center. An obliterated city, 
explosions of light, buildings immediately flattened. Above the thicket Isako, smoke rises from another life Isako. The wail of air, ra- air raid sirens, the life you lead, Isako, not so distant as you may think. After Hiroshima. It took four days to cry, and then there was nothing left to say. They say it rained black, that boys with mouths swelled to pomegranates drank the water and died, thick with silt, flayed by fire. The skin of a woman's hand came away in a medic's grip. Mizu, 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 she screamed, knowing water would make her die. In the museum, Binged bits of hair, a scorched kimono, pink flowers still visible, charred lunchbox, rice turned to powder, stacks of porcelain teacups used in the blinding flash. O mother, O land, O country covered in ash, faces crisped by fourth-degree burns, blackening or charring of the skin, Leathery texture, loss of all feeling. To orient, to face or turn east, to discover one's position in relation to another. Standing in the shadow of the A-bomb memorial, birds start overhead, in and out of skeletal frame. Gabbed brick interior crushed, gutted by fire. Sing to me, Isako, over your curry rice, pink rollers in your hair. Tell me again. First time I hear God's voice is over the radio to the government. Can you imagine of the United States? Can you? Our empire accepts provisions of declaration. To reorient, to align oneself after a disorientation, to undergo a change in essence, to lose one's original nature. Years later, a woman's body drifts back into the bay, lips red when opened, stomach curried with a wire brush. Thank you so much, Neil. This was a fabulous conversation. Oh, this, this, I, I, can't thank you enough. This has been such a, an amazing conversation, and yeah, I, I feel like we could I feel like fed. <laughs> I feel like really, really full of like wonderful thoughts and ideas, and just a desire to go out and and yeah. craft something to pass on to to a next yeah. generation. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Oh gosh, it was such a such a privilege. I loved every minute. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lit Fantastic. Our guest was Mia Malhotra, author of Asako Asako, recently out from Alice James Books and winner of the 2017 Alice James Award. For more information about Mia, her writing, and where to find her online or in person, check out www.miamalhotra.com. That's www. M-I-A-M-A-L-H-O-T-R-A dot com. Previous episodes of Lit Fantastic can be found archived at kboo.fm or on iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own website, www.thelitfantastic.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.